0: We are all ministers, as much ministers as any else. We're called to do a work. And if the Lord leads you into children's ministry, by all means, go. Here's a testimony. I, I just, I just recalled this today. I, I, I forgot to share it first service, but, um, but I talked to somebody last week. Maybe you're here this morning, uh, and I hope you don't mind me sharing this. This, but you know, no one's not not going to know who it's about, anyways. But last week was her first time in church in quite some time. I forget how long it was. Several years. And um, her life has just been kind of falling apart. A marriage that was ending and some other things going on. And she was, I, you could tell, a, a person has been through, through the, the laundry a couple of times. And as her life fell apart, she didn't know where to turn and where to go and who to call. She had, had no one. She remembered a youth pastor she had some 20 years ago in the Salvation Army. And she looked him up in the phone book and gave him a call. His number was still there, and uh, called him, and I don't know his name, but he attends Woodland Hills Church, and she was here last week, and I hope she were here this morning, and um, putting her life back together again, because of someone she knew 20 years ago in a youth group. All that is to say this, never, ever think that children's ministry and youth ministry is sort of just taking care of kids while we do the real thing. It is ministry, folks, and you're planting seeds, and sometimes those seeds don't come to fruition until 20 years later, but you're planting seeds. It is a very high calling. Um, be open to the Lord leading you in that direction. Isn't that great how God does that? I, I, lo- I love stories like that. I just love them. Praise God. And praise God, whoever, I, I forget the person, and you, I'm sure you're not worried about credit, but the, the, that youth pastor was here 20 years later for planting that seed, and you made an impact so that she thought of you when, when, when she needed to turn to someone. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Praise God. A couple updates on things. A couple updates. i uh, be praying about the Phelan deal. We're still working on that. It's still going forward. We have a very important meeting this week, uh, on Tuesday, in fact. And we're just, um, we're just knocking on doors. We're not prying anything open. We're just knocking on doors. And when one opens, we step through it. And then we say, okay, what's the next step? One of the things that's I'm, I'm, happening with me is that I am learning a lot about politics. You know, I didn't have any, any idea what a community board was, a community council was, a district council, a representative. I still really am very vague on all this. I really don't care much about politics. But what I'm finding out is that this is a... Uh, I want to say a bureaucratic mess, but I want to say it respectfully. How do you say bureaucratic A bureaucratic busyness. I don't know what to say. But it's like a giant clock that's got a lot of little uh, wheels inside... And all the wheels spin very, very fast, but the whole thing moves very, very, very slow. And there's a, a million committees and different people, and, and they don't talk to each other a whole lot. So you convince someone of an idea, but then you've got to convince this person and this committee and go here and go there, and it's really complex. But anyways, we're just walking through the doors as they open. We're not putting all of our eggs there. We're looking at Builder Square. We are looking to see where God will open up a space for us. And, and be in prayer about that. That's all I can say. Be in prayer. And uh, when, when, when God's timing is right, it's going to open up, right? And there will be. Um, in the meantime, what I've noticed is that people are getting here earlier. Now, let's see, there's a positive side of this. It used to be at Woodland Hills, honestly. Uh, 11 o'clock, we're about a third full. 11.10, we're about half full. About 11.20, bam, everyone's here. And now I'm noticing that people are getting here earlier. So, <laughs> that's positive. someone asked about the ACLU I mentioned them a couple weeks ago they've been n- nosing around uh, that's the uh, uh, American Civil Liberties Union and I don't want to go into all that they stand for or whatever but all I have report on that is that um, they don't seem to be on anymore and that's positive so I, no news is good news let a sleeping dog lie or something like that the book of Hebrews chapter 4 book of hebrews um, as we continue our study here sometimes i preach and sometimes i teach and this is very much more of a teaching mode here this morning and i'm going to ask the lord to really give me a succinctness of expression because i've got something in my heart and i want to share it here and it's hard to share it in a short amount of time but i'll do my best um, very much more of a teaching mode sometimes i aim at the heart and try to transfer motivation other times it's more of a teaching to the head than, than a prayer that it will saturate the heart. And, and this falls into the second of those categories. What it means is this. I'm gonna, this message is going to be challenging. It's gonna be, uh, sometimes the, the difficulty is receiving it in your heart. Sometimes the difficulty is following it with your brain. This is going to be demanding in terms of uh, y- your, your mind. And I'm going to challenge you to hang with me on this. It will pay off huge dividends, I believe, if, if you hang in there. But it's not going to be the easiest thing to listen to. And Dave Churchill, if he was here, would be saying, well, it never is. But uh, Hebrews 4, verse 12. Indeed, the Word of God is living and active. The Word of God. This is no book, no mere book. It's living and active. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Here's how living and active it is. It pierces until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow, It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is such power in this passage. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And before him no creature is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your word this morning would be living and active. And it's your spirit that makes it that way. I pray, God, that this morning it would just explode in our minds. Lord, I pray that you'd give us attentiveness to hang on this because, Lord, uh, there is such freedom in this passage if we can but take the time to chew on it and pick it apart. Lord, sometimes in this fast and busy culture we get addicted to speed and, and, and we read things fast and we think things fast and we do things fast, but you didn't inspire your word to be read that way. So, Lord, help us to settle down and to chew and to be patient and to wrestle with this thing to get every drop of nourishment that we can get out of this. Lord God, be present here. We pray in your name. Amen. A little word about what I'm going to talk on here. I want to speak on the division of soul and spirit. The Word of God is sharper than any two edged sword to the piercing. The dividing of soul and spirit. I wasn't initially going to make a big deal out of this, but as the week has gone on, I just have felt compelled to deal with this, even though it's something of a challenging topic. To get at it, I want to first say a preliminary word, and it's this. There has been throughout church history a debate that we're not even going to pay much attention to because it's not that important. But it's a debate between two schools of thought within Christianity about how human beings are composed. There are those, there's a school of thought that says that, that basically we're composed of two fundamental elements. We are soul and, and body, body and soul. And most common, most laity, most people just think that way. We're body and soul, the body's temporal, the soul's eternal, but we'll be united in the resurrection. So there's two main, main aspects of the human self, body and soul. They're called the, the dualist school of, of thought or the dichotomist school of thought. There's another school of thought that come around, comes around about the 3rd and 4th century, and they say that we are composed of three fundamental aspects or dimensions. Made in the image of the triune God, we are composed of three fundamental aspects. We are body and soul for sure, but there's also another dimension to us, and that is spirit. That is spirit. There's a difference in other words between soul and spirit, whereas the first group says there's no difference between soul and spirit. Now, for a variety of reasons, I fall in the second camp. I'm a trichotomist. I even think that that's kind of important. But I want you to note this at the start. That's how I work out the teaching of the passage. You can get the thrust of the teaching of the passage without working it out the way I work it out. Whether you're a dualist or a trichotomist, and probably right now you you don't fall strongly in either camp, and that's fine too, but see, there's a difference between how you work out your theology and what you believe on the basis of God's word. And so often, the reason I say that is so often in the body of Christ, we let arguments about verbiage and theological programs get in the way of agreeing on the teaching that we have in common. And I'm not against talking about and debating and, and you know even in a godly way arguing different theologies. I'm for that. In fact, heck, I'm a theology of, uh, professor of theology. So I like that kind of stuff. At the same time, I know that that stuff can be a a distraction and a fire. And sometimes there are groups out there where they think that every opinion you have is just as important as whether or not you believe God was incarnated. And you can spend so much time arguing over that stuff that it detracts from the work that there is to do. Okay. So, having said that, there's a story behind that, but I don't want to even get into it because it would take up more time and we've got other things to do. Okay. Okay. The teaching of the passage you can get however you break that down. Know this ahead of time. I tend to be in the trichotomous camp. The reason I am in that is for this reason. The verse here says that the Word of God is sharp to the point where it can divide soul and spirit. Just like it divides joint and marrow. I don't know how the Word of God could divide soul and spirit if they're identical. In the same way that the joint and marrow, the joint that connects the bone and the marrow that's inside the bone is different from one another, so also it seems to me that soul and spirit are different. Two sides of the same coin, perhaps, but there's a distinction there. That's why the Bible says that they can be divided. 1 Thessalonians five twenty three. Paul prays, May God bless your body, soul, and spirit. And if body and soul are distinct, and no one doubts that, why well, think that soul and spirit are not distinct? I think they're distinct. But don't worry about that if you don't. But you're wrong. <laughs> no, sorry. Cheap. Here's what I think the distinction comes to. What difference does this make? What, what, what is the distinction that is getting, the, the author is getting at here? I believe in this verse. There's a parallel being drawn between a physical analogy and a spiritual analogy. The Word of God is sharp. The main point of the passage is to say that the Word of God can pierce deep, deep, innermost things about us. On a physical level, the author says this. The, a sword can divide your joints where the bones are together. That's sharp. The Word of God can do that. But it can even go further and divide what's in the bones that are joined. It, it, it can divide bones, but it can even, not only divide bone, bones that are joined together, it can, it not only can it split joints, but it can divide the bones themselves. It can get to the morrow and separate marrow. And not only can the Word of God pierce our thoughts, but it can pierce the intentions, the innermost part of us that produces those thoughts so also the word of God can divide soul and spirit. What the author, I think, is saying here is that soul is to us on a spiritual level what the joints of a bone are on a, on a physical level, and spirit is to us on a spiritual level what marrow is to us on a physical level, and the word of God can divide like a sharp sword. The word for soul is psuche in Greek, and it, 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 it's, it literally means psyche, psyche. Not psychic, but psyche, We get the word psychology from it, and it denotes, I believe, this, given the whole totality of Scripture. Our soul is, as it were, our personality. It is our thought process. It is our feeling process. It is the way that we put ourselves together, like a skeleton's put together by joints. Our soul is the way that we put together ourselves in terms of our experience. Our thoughts, our feelings, our self-consciousness. Spirit is what is inside what is put together the marrow of the bones, so to speak. It is the seat, the the innermost part of the self. It is our will. It is the place where we make decisions about things. And it's not, I don't believe, identical with our personality or identical with our thoughts, identical with our attitudes, identical with our psyche. I believe there's a difference there. If you hit me on the head, my psyche goes out for a little bit. I become unconscious, but my spirit goes on continuously. When we go to sleep at night, our souls sleep; we're not conscious, but our spirit is still there. That's why God can sometimes commune with us through dreams, because that's still there. Our spirit communes with God. I can't go into this anymore. Uh, but a, a, a good book on this, a couple, a good author on this is Watchman Nee. Now, I don't. Some of you have read Watchman Nee. Um, good stuff. You can get a Northwestern bookstore. I don't buy everything he says, but a lot of stuff he says is really good. And on this issue, he makes a big deal out of the soul and spirit and body distinction. One book that he wrote is called The Spiritual Man. It's kind of his magnum opus. And, and that's where he uh, really lays out his theology. It's worth getting. Now, the main point of the passage, again, is this. The Word of God is living and active, and it can, if you are open to it, it will cut you like a knife, in a good way. It can cut you for surgery, and it can cut you to wound you if what you need to do is to bleed. But it pierces to our innermost being. But I believe that there's even more to be had if we're willing to take the time and chew on it in talking about this distinction between soul and spirit. Here's why I think it's important. Most people identify with their soul. Now follow me on this. Most people, most of the time, most Christians, most of the time assume that you are your thoughts, you are your feelings, you are your personality, you are your attitudes. That's just who you are. You identify with your thoughts, you identify with your feelings. Feelings, on the whole, are simply your emotional response to your thoughts. We don't respond to reality, we respond to our thoughts about reality. If Charles comes by me and, and I say hi to Charles and Charles doesn't pay any attention to me, I can begin to feel depressed, I can begin to feel discouraged, maybe I begin to feel ugly, maybe I begin to feel mad. I get all sorts of emotions. But I'm not responding to Charles. I'm responding to what I think about Charles, how I represent Charles to myself. And maybe that Charles was just thinking about something else and didn't hear me. But see, how you represent reality to yourself determines your feelings. And we normally identify with our thoughts and our feelings. That's our psyche, our our psychology, our personality. And we assume that that is the totality of who we are. We're body and soul, and soul is this personality thing. But think for a moment here. If that was true, how is it that we can go against our thoughts and against our feelings? I think the way the word portrays it, we are more, we transcend our thoughts and our feelings. A young man is thinking about it. He wants to, he's wondering whether or not he should go to bed with this young lady. He's not married to her. They're on a date. Should he go and sleep with her or not? He can have thoughts about that that say, don't. You have every reason in the world not to do that. You believe in the Bible. The Bible says don't do that. You know that you can contract a sexually transmitted disease. You, you can get her pregnant. Your life could be ruined. Don't do this. And you can have feelings about that based on the thoughts. You're representing yourself in a certain way. So you have conviction there. You have uh, you know, feelings of remorse there and fears there. And yet you can choose to go against that. Which tells you that you're more than your thoughts and your feelings. Your thoughts and the feelings don't determine you you can when you want to choose against that we sometimes go against our better judgment don't we that's what i'm talking about if we were our thoughts and our feelings if we were our soul how is it that the bible tells us to control our thoughts the bible tells us what to do with our thoughts for example in second corinthians chapter 10 verse 3 through 5 it says this take every thought the weapons of our warfare it says are not carnal but they're spiritual to the tearing down of strongholds, places where the enemy has set up territory. Whereby we, we come against every thought, every reasoning process, and every imagination is one translation of the Greek there. Every reasoning process and every imagination that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. What you know to be true with God, well, there's, there's thoughts and imaginations, pictures or whatever that come against that. We come against those, and Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, we take every thought captive to Jesus Christ. Who is he talking to there? He's talking to you as a spirit who can make a decision about things. And the decision you can make is to take thoughts captive. You are not your thoughts. You transcend your thoughts. And therefore, you transcend the feelings that are based on those thoughts. Romans twelve two says this. Be transformed. Be no longer conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Renew your mind. Go over it again and again. Choose what you think, is what he's saying. But to say that, you have to transcend what you think. You have to be more than what you think. Most people just assume that they are what they think. But you are a spirit that transcends that. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 24 through 25 says, Put off the old self and put on the new. How? By trying hard? No. By being transformed by the renewing of the attitude of your mind. You can choose what to think. Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, Whatsoever things are good, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are blameless, whatsoever things are are, are true, think on those things. The Bible tells us what to think. That presupposes that we can control what we think. That presupposes that we are more than what we think. That's the basic distinction between the soul and the spirit. Let 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 me make it practical here. A young lady... Uh, comes into my office. I spoke with her a little while ago. I changed the details of these stories, by the way, so that if you ever think you know who I'm talking about, I guarantee you that's not who I'm talking about. But I'm talking to her, and, and, and she starts off like this. Here, here's the cash value of this. And this is why this can be so, you guys, this can be so freeing. It can be so freeing. If, if, if it lands, if you get it, if you, if, you, if you receive it. And she says, God has abandoned me. Jesus Christ isn't anywhere to be found in my life. He's just, he's done with me. He's through. He's gone. And I'm mad about it. And I'm depressed about it. I said, are you a believer? And she says, yes, I'm a believer. Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Yes, he's my Lord and Savior. You believe the Bible is the word of God? Yes, I believe the Bible is the word of God. Now, I know some things going on here. I don't know why she thinks this way. I don't know why. Whether it's her mom or dad or someone screwed up in the past. And that's an interesting thing to talk about. But I don't need to know why she's this way to know how she is this way. I know how she's this way. She's identifying with thoughts and feelings that are inconsistent with the Word of God. So I asked her, why do you think God has abandoned you? And she gave the typical answer that most American Christians give. Well, I just feel that way. Feelings is the criteria for truth, you see. I feel this way. Well, now I know that she's not not responding to reality, because I know that that's not real. She's responding to a picture of reality, or the way she represents reality to herself, and she thinks that this is who she is, and she thinks that this is what God is like. So I said, when you when you pray, when you when you when you try to pray, when you think about God, what do you see, or what do you hear? What's going on in your head? And she said, Well, that's it. When I when I pray, I close my eyes, and, and I, I when I when I picture Jesus, what I see is this: there's this huge gulf. Uh, like a grand canyon, and Jesus is on the other side of the gulf and he's looking away from me and he's got his arms folded and he's kind of looking up like this. He doesn't have the time for me. He doesn't really care about me. And I'm on the other side of the canyon and I can shout to him, but he doesn't hear. I said, well, it's no wonder that you feel like he's abandoned you. Look at how you're thinking about him. But the question is this. Is that true? You believe the Bible is the word of God? She goes, yes. I said, well, have you ever read the verse that says in Matthew twenty-eight twenty, I will never leave you or forsake you. There's a verse in John chapter 14, verses 16 through 18, which, where Jesus says, I won't leave you as little orphans. I won't leave you fatherless. I will come again to you. And I am with you now, but I shall be in you. I shall make my abode. Take out my residence in you. Now, you believe the word of God is true? Yes. Then you believe that verse is true? Yes. Then you know that that picture is wrong. It's, like, it's what you call cognitive dissonance. So, well, wait a minute. The picture is right. See, and here... And I said, why? Why do you think the picture is right? Because it feels right. Here's the trap. She feels like God's abandoned her because she pictures God abandoning her. And then she uses the feelings to validate the picture. This is one of the cleverest traps of the enemy. We've got lying pictures in our brain, lying voices in our head, lying memories that are there, and it makes us feel a certain way, and because it feels a certain way, we think they must be true. That is... Psyche stuff, that's soul stuff, that's personality stuff, that's self-consciousness stuff. But what this woman needed to know was this. You are a spirit. You can make decisions. This brain is your brain. You're more than this brain. You can step outside of here and you can decide what goes on in your brain. She felt like she couldn't help it. This is what happens when you identify with your soul. You think you can't help it. You just, she was waiting for the picture to go away. Well, who's going to take it away? Her grandmother? A genie, this is her brain. It's her picture. It's her movie. She's the director. And so I said, you're a spirit. You can make decisions about that. Is that, what you, is that what you really believe to be true? No. Then let's alter the picture. It was like a new thing for her. You see, you're a spirit. You can make decisions about this. You can choose truth. So let's go back into that picture here where Jesus is on the other side of the, 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 the Grand Canyon looking the other direction. And this is... Align your spirit with the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Lord, you are true. And I believe, I make the decision to believe that what you say is true. Whatever I think, whatever I feel, I put your truth over everything else. And the basis of that, I start closing the gap. Just start thinking about that. Here the Lord starts saying to you true stuff. So we picture Jesus Christ turning around and saying, I'll call her Carol. Carol, I love you. I died for you, Carol. I will never leave you or forsake you. And all the time he's talking, the, the, the gap is getting closer and closer and closer. Make it in color. Make it really big. Make it vivid. We're coming against every vision, every imagination, every reasoning process that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. We're coming against the lie of there being a gulf between you and Jesus. That's not what Jesus said, and therefore that's not what's true. And so we close the gap, we close the gap till finally... Here's her and here's Jesus. And they're looking at each other eye to eye, nose to nose, foot to foot. And he is saying, you are altogether lovely. You are altogether beautiful. I've loved you with an everlasting love. And then you can picture the Lord embracing her. That's what's true. Now, there are times where she began to think, wait, wait, wait. That doesn't sound right because she's so used to thinking a lie. But we've got to tear down that stronghold in Jesus' name and give her a true picture of what Jesus Christ is like. And eventually the feelings begin to start. The bottom line is this. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Amen? You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. But the way you get the truth is this. You as a spirit have to realize that God gave you a soul. God, You have thoughts, but you are not those thoughts. And you have attitudes, but you are not those attitudes. You've got memories, but you are not those memories. You are a spirit that makes free decisions. And you decide to align yourself with Jesus Christ. You decide, decide to align yourself with the Word of God. And on that basis, you begin to intentionally, with the help of the Holy Spirit working through you, rearrange the furniture, the movies, if you will, in your mind to line up with God's Word. That's freedom! So many people walk around in this vicious trap, having lies in their head, feeling lies because of the pictures they have in their heads, and they don't know how to alter it. You've got to step out of the thing and realize that there's a division between soul and spirit. You make this decision, Jesus Christ is Lord of your life, and the Word of God is the authority of your life. And that means... That if anything agrees with that, fine. And if anything disagrees with it, fine as well. You come against it. Because Jesus Christ is Lord of your life. That means your, the voice of your mother or the voice of your father or the voice of past experience is not Lord of your life. If Jesus Christ is Lord of your life, that means that your memories are not Lord of your life and it means that your depression is not Lord of your life. It means that your emotions are not Lord of your life. It means that your feelings are not Lord of your life. You choose as a spiritual being to take the Word of God, here's how it divides soul and spirit. It says this is what is true, and everything else about your personality, everything else about your thoughts that doesn't agree with that gets exposed. And you come against it in Jesus' name. But see, it takes the Word of God to do it. The reason why the author says the Word of God is so sharp, it can divide even this far through the division of soul and spirit, is that it's impossible to divide it otherwise. It's the one thing on the planet that can get to the real issues. And it, here, here's how it is. As a spirit who now wants to live under the lordship of jesus christ you have to make this decision in the face sometimes of incredibly vivid lurid memories and voices you say i choose this to be true but i don't feel that way irrelevant you choose this to be true and this isn't saying deny the feelings you have of course it should be there as long as the picture is there deal with the feelings but change the picture change the voice change the image change the change the soul on the base of the authority of the word here's the deal god created us this way, there's to be a proper hierarchy. God created us to be spirit that is under the lordship of him. So we receive our call from him. We receive our life from him. And spirit is to be in, in charge of, of, of soul, of mind, of thought, of feelings. We are, as spirit beings, under the lordship of God, to be in a position where we tell our mind what to think. It doesn't tell us what to think. We tell our, our, ourselves what to feel. It doesn't tell us what to feel. And the basis of soul, we tell our bodies how to act. It's supposed to be spirit, soul, body. We act in congruity with our mind, which is in congruity with our spirit. And as we act out that, we then control our environment. Spirit lords over soul, soul lords over body, body lords over environment. That's why the Bible says we're to have dominion over the earth. That's the hierarchy, and it all is to be pointed towards the Lord. The Lord rules the creation through us. As long as we are aligned in our spirit with the Lord, that begins to happen. But when we choose to opt out of that, as we did in the Garden of Eden, and we follow instead the the lordship of Satan, who opposes God, what happens is that whole thing gets reversed. And now what happens is the environment. Paul says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. The pattern of this world, instead of us controlling it, it controls us. We define who we are on the basis of what's outside of us. We become like animals in that animals are creatures of their environment, and we become creatures of our environment. We're supposed to be creatures that are defined by God, but instead we become creatures that are defined by what's around us, by our experience, by our memories, and whatnot. Our environment tells our body what to think and what to feel. Our, Our bodies tell our brains what to think and what to feel. And then our spirit just follows kind of as a caboose and says, this is who I am, this is who I am. You see how jaded it is? For the believer that's made Jesus Christ Lord of your life, the Lord wants to organize that priority stuff. And it happens this way. You made Jesus Christ Lord of your life. You decide. You decide that what he says about you is true. And that means that you begin to work out the life you get from Jesus Christ in your spirit into your mind and then into your body and then into the world around you. Now there's two ways very, very quickly here. <laughs> two ways that this can be applied. Hang with me here. Cut me a little slack, all right? Can you cut me five minutes? Okay, good. What are you going to do? Okay. No. <laughs> you guys, this is freeing. The reason why it's necessary for the Word to divide soul and spirit is that sometimes we live where there's not congruity between the two. Something's gone wrong. They're supposed to be in harmony with one another, and sometimes there's not. And so it's surgery that the, that the, the Word of God does, and it divides the two apart. Sometimes the incongruity, the disharmony, is because... Our, uh, is based in our soul, and sometimes it's based in our spirit. Let me, let, me talk, let me just apply this really quickly. For the believer, it can often happen that your spirit is regenerate. That means regenerate. It means born again. You're born again. You have made the decision to make Jesus Christ Lord of your life. You have chosen his lordship. That's what it is to be saved. That's what it is in your innermost being to say yes to Jesus Christ. And yet it can happen this way. Because we are in a fallen world, the pattern of this world encroaches in on us. And there we've got, we've got the bone, we've got the marrow in the bone. But the bones aren't joined together right. Because of things in our past, because of wounds that we have received, maybe because of present circumstances, your innermost being is regenerate, is born again, it is saved, you're aligned with God, and there's an incongruity there. Sometimes you ever have this happen where all of a sudden something will happen and will trigger like an old tape, the old self. It's unbelievable how oh, that can just hit you. For me, my father, my father used to be one of the... He, I, he should have gotten an award, I suppose, that they had awards for this, but he was one of the world's greatest swearers. He could put together sentences upon sentences without one moderately clean word. It was amazing. He came up with... with po- it was almost poetic. Sour owls crap. I mean, that, like, that, that's one of the cleaner ones. Who, sour owls. You know, how, how does he come up with these expressions? I don't know why I remember that one. And there, see, what can happen is I can be in the right situation where something isn't going right or whatever, and all of a sudden, bam, all right on the side of my head, there's a thought process, an old tape that says, here's the appropriate way to respond to situations like this. <laughs> and my spirit is saying, Lordship of Jesus Christ, Lordship of Jesus Christ, but my memory, my thoughts, whatever, are, are fighting against me. There's an incongruity there. For some people, this incongruity can be really severe. I went nine months at the University of Minnesota living like an atheist, thinking I was an atheist, trying to be an atheist, but I believe, looking back on it, that I was saved the whole time because in my innermost being, the the part of me that is deeper than what I think and deeper than what I feel, the core of my decision-making capabilities, who I most truly am, I wanted to be a believer. I wanted Jesus Christ. I missed dad something fierce. But I didn't think, I, I just could not believe it. It just seemed to me, to, it didn't make sense. There wasn't any evidence. There wasn't any proof. It, it wasn't rational. I just honestly could not bring myself to believe it. But I wanted to. I was the most hurting atheist the world's ever seen, I think. I was just so empty. But see, that's the incongruity. And sometimes you can look at a person and think, ha, they're a Christian? But if you, if you feel very closely, there is a pulse there. There's a butterfly in the cocoon that wants to come up, but the cocoon is really thick, and you can barely hear it fluttering. The whole process of our growth is getting rid of the cocoon of the old self and manifesting the new self, letting that butterfly free, letting the spirit take charge of the mind, take charge of the attitude, take charge of the personalities, until you get the whole self, the whole personality, the whole thought process, every thought captive to Jesus Christ. But it happens when you no longer identify with your soul. And you realize that you can step out and look at this. I want to leave it like this for, for believers. Pay attention. Let the Holy Spirit show you areas that you're captivated in. Areas where you just say, well, that's just me. Yeah, you're captivated. See, when you identify with soul, you feel like you can't help it. You feel like it's a victim. You feel like it's happening to you. Without realizing that, you're above that. Pay attention to these things. Pictures, ideas, words, impulses that you just identify with and you think that it's just you. But then ask the question, is this really true or not? And then ask the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit to work through your spirit and making the decision to believe that this is true and that is not. And you will see the, the, the Word of God begin to divide soul and spirit. It's a, it's a way of divi- dividing thoughts and intentions. Thoughts and intentions. The verse also says, it's a way of dividing the joints. What puts you together in your experience, and what constitutes you in the morrow. You see, it divides it. And you make that choice. And all healing is the result of that. All healing is the result of that. Growing in congruity as your spirit aligns with your mind and your feelings align with your thoughts, and then your behaviors align with your feelings, and then you begin to do the work of God that we're called to do in this world. The Lord lives out His Lordship through you. But it means getting rid of these blockages. Your soul, your spirit, your body. One other application of this whole thing, it'll take 30 seconds, but listen carefully. The problem when there's an incongruity between soul and spirit can be the soul. The spirit is regenerate, the spirit is born again, the soul is wounded, it needs to be healed, it's healed by the word of God, it's surgery. This is the, 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 the scalpel the, the knife, or whatever it's called, the scalpel, that the surgeon uses. Forget it. <laughs> the thingy bobber, all right? But it can happen this way. You can have your, you can have your, your uh, bones put together perfectly all right and you've got a good-looking skeleton and there's no marrow on the inside. And this is the case of non-believers here. You can be a non-believer and go to church all your life and be very, very religious and, and, and you just have it. You probably look better than life because they're not getting life from it, but you are. You're a creature of your environment. You're conformed to the pattern of this world. It just happens to be that you're in a religious world and so you're good at being religious. The question is, what's on the inside? Do you have any marrow? And for believers who have the marrow, but the buoyant bones are disjointed, they've got to be put together right, the Word of God is a healing word. But for, for, for people who are not believers, their spirit is not saying yes to Jesus Christ, though so they may be very religious on the outside. They've got a nice looking skeleton, no marrow on the inside. The Word of God has got to be a cutting word. You can put bones together and heal relatively easy. You got to break a bone to put marrow in it. At least in the first century, you did. And what you need is a marrow transplant. And the word of God wants to break you. And what I mean by that is simply this: If you want to be saved, you want to be aligned with the Lord Jesus Christ and begin healing in your life. You want to begin to experience what all this excitement was about. What you need to do is to say no to yourself and say, "I want to live for You." I'm tired of driving. I, I don't care what. You don't have to be tired of it. You don't even have to. I don't care what you feel. Feelings are irrelevant here. But if there's something in the core of your being that's saying, I need the Lord Jesus Christ, it means crucifying yourself, saying no to yourself, denying yourself, and saying, I will follow Jesus Christ. And sometimes that will break you. Sometimes even us believers go through experiences that feel like breaking. But I want to tell you this. It is the key to life. You don't know what it's like to live with real morrow on the inside until you receive it. Accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior this morning. I'm going to pray, and when I'm done, feel free to come forward. In fact, you can feel free to come forward for any need, but I'm talking especially to those who who are, who are don't have a spirit right now that's panting after Jesus Christ and saying yes to him. Come forward. There'll be some people up here who would love to pray for you and talk with you and get that marrow transplant that you need. Father, I thank you that you have, under you, put us in the driver's seat of our thoughts and our attitudes and our bodies and our world. But Lord, we want to drive only as you tell us to drive because you're the Lord. I pray, God, that you would be setting your... I am so sick and tired of the enemy's delusions and lies. And it's circular arguments that get us to feel low because of the pictures we have and validate the pictures we have because of our feeling low. God, what a delusion. Set your people free, Lord. As the truth goes forward, set your people free, Lord God. Help us, Lord God, to see our minds as as sort of computers that you gave us to interface with the world. But we program the computers and we do it according to your word and nothing else. Hallelujah, Lord. Set your people free. Help us to walk out of here with a sense of healing and deliverance from the stronghold and to take every thought captive and every emotion captive to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, to those who are here, Lord, who do not have the marrow in the bones, I pray, Lord God, that you pull them in their spirit. Communicate to them on that level that's below their thoughts and feelings, Lord God, and pull them forward that they might receive you.